We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. Welcome this morning. We're very glad to see you all. Let's turn our Bibles to Ezekiel 37, please. Our scripture reading in Ezekiel 37. My wife reminded me that I... um, could announce too that there are some herbs, some plants. There are real life herbs over there in the fellowship hall. You can uh, take one or two of those uh, if you want, or one of each different kind. There's enough there, I think, that we won't run out. So please uh, see those and uh, grab one of those on your way out, or several, and that will help us to uh, move those into hands that can use them. All right, Ezekiel. Uh, 37, please. And this is one of my favorite portions of the book of Ezekiel. I think you'll agree if you uh, remember it or if it's brought back to your memory here um, about the resurrection of Israel. And uh, some have, I think, set aside a little bit the doctrine of personal individual resurrection from this passage, and I think that's a mistake. Um, and they focus on the corporate aspect of the resurrection of Israel. Uh, The reality is that the corporate resurrection of the nation happens only through the individual resurrection of individual Israelites. However, it is true that a focus on the corporate resurrection of Israel, that is, you know, the, the bringing back of the nation, and I'm not talking about 1948, okay? We're not going there but that the corporate resurrection of Israel is something that theologians should keep in mind and in heart. Some who do not have set aside the nation of Israel in favor of the church, and they've just left no more place for the nation, as if these promises are outmoded and will never come to fruition. That's not how God's word works. God is faithful to his promises, and when he makes a promise, he's going to keep that promise even with a nation that seems so far away from him, especially at this time, that uh, they seemed hopeless, but they were not hopeless. All right, Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, And indeed, they were very dry. See, there's no life left in them. There's nothing at all. No living cells there, so to speak. Verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Verse 4, Again, he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. 
And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. I think he's you know, focusing here on the individuality of these ones that are being raised up here, not just a national picture. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. There's, there's resurrection. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. <clears throat> then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah, and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? What are these? Well, those are the two sticks. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. So uh, I don't think you should picture this as God telling um, Ezekiel to magically join these sticks together and they become one. It's a picture. Right? I think he has two sticks and he holds them one up from his hand and one down from his hand and so they look like one. And one is for Judah and one is for Ephraim, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Let's read on. Verse, uh, where were we? Verse eight, uh, 19. Um, Say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land. That's what the meaning of the figure is, or the meaning of the two sticks. On the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they be ever divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places 
in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Now, as for my part, folks, in verse 24, I believe that that means David. That's not a figure for the Messiah. Uh, Some have taken this to refer to the greater David. I believe God, since he's going to raise up believing Israel, is going to also raise up King David. And David will be over them as a shepherd is, as a prince under the great king, the Messiah. Verse 25, Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When he says my tabernacle shall be with them, that is my dwelling place. God is going to dwell with his people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So we're talking about the new covenant. We're talking about the kingdom age. We're talking about God dwelling with his people. Israel united in one nation, not in two nations, not in idolatry, but in what state? Well, the state of regeneration, which we talked about from chapter 36. Remember, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will put my spirit in you. That's speaking of being saved. So the nation of Israel will be resurrected and his spirit will be within them. Glorious time and place that will be. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Philippians, please. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. We're in chapter 4. We come to the end of the book. The Apostle Paul began the book with an initial prayer and a report about the things that were happening to him where he was in the imprisoned state. And he talked about how the gospel had made good advances in even in Caesar's household and amongst the soldiers there and the guard that was uh, keeping him and that Christ was preached as far as he knew in a number of areas about him, although not always for the best motivations. But the gospel was advancing, and he was very thankful for that. He admonishes the Philippian church in verses uh, chapter 127 through 218 to, to remain uh, united despite their persecution. And, and really, here's a, a real emphasis of the book. It's not so much joy as some commentators have very simplistically put, but really the idea of a like-minded humility toward one another in the church, a like-minded humility. <clears throat> and that would bring uh, a joy and, and uh, a service toward one another in the church. And, and that just rises to my, in my mind to the top of the list of themes Uh, in the letter. Uh, They're asked to uh, follow the example of Christ's humility in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind, remember, you can almost hear it as you memorized it, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who uh, came, you know, was lowered and then exalted. He asks us to pursue sanctification, to shine his lights in the world, and, and even to rejoice with him in the midst of his persecution 
as he was being poured out, uh, he thought possibly like a drink offering on top of their service to the Lord. And uh, then he deals with some details about the different gospel ministers, uh, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and uh, himself, uh, how, what they're doing, and uh, so reporting to the church that way. And then in chapter 3, mainly chapter 3, he deals with some warnings to the church there to beware of the circumcision faction, those who were uh, bringing the uh, gospel mixed with uh, Jewish works, with circumcision and with law-keeping, the Judaizing party, as we talked about. And then those who were focused on worldly things were the subject of his second warning. Many of them, enemies of the cross of Christ, he says, many are they who do this. And we can stay away from that if we recognize that our citizenship is in heaven and not on this earth. He gives them some more admonitions to be like-minded and to have joy and gentleness and the peace of God to to pray. We talked about the whole matter of anxiety, which uh, is often a test for us uh, over in chapter 4, 6. Uh, and we really connected four through nine all together and, and gave a kind of prescription for how God helps us to deal with, with anxiety and with anxious thoughts. Uh, trusting God would, uh, would supply the needs of the people there. Paul gives them thanks for their offering that they had sent to him by the hand of Epaphroditus. He said, I have everything that I need. Uh, even if I didn't, I've learned to be abased and I've learned to abound. I've learned contentment in whatever situation that I find myself, and that is an important lesson for us as we review our own situation. Maybe some of us are a little less than content with our lot in life, and Paul exhorts us to live in a kind of way that he has learned to do, whatever God has brought into his life. So we come now to the very last four verses of the text of chapter 4 and of the book, and they read this way, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household or who are Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as we look at these last verses of the book to gain and glean some important truths from them and to remind ourselves of the fact that they are scriptural. They are here for our edification. And I pray that indeed we will be edified. Help me as I share the thoughts that you've allowed me to study and each one here as we do that to pay good attention to the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it might be easy for you, and maybe you've noticed yourself doing this, to read these verses or verses like these at the end of every letter in the New Testament and to just kind of gloss over them. They become boilerplate text. It's like, okay, Paul, we know you've got from, to, and greeting, and then you write a bunch of stuff, and then you've got, you know, in your, in your document template, you've got grace be to you and peace and blah, 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 and it'll just get on to the next letter, right? Don't rush over it. Don't rush over it just quite yet. The content of the letter is not basically done, although it is basically done, but in another sense, it's not done. Slow down 
and read carefully. And I want to focus on this verse 20 because it is so important for us to, to be here in our hearts and in our minds. When he says, now to God, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. This is what we call a doxology. Okay, it's a one verse doxology. The word doxology itself is built on two parts, the doxa part and the, the logi part. Okay? We often think of that last four letters or, or O-L-O-G-Y or whatever to be like the study of something, like biology or theology. It also can mean a discourse about something, and that's really what it means here. This is not a study of glory, but a, it's a discourse about doxa, and doxa comes from the Greek word, which is that very word, doxa, which I put in your notes there, which speaks of the glory of something or the honor of something, the glory of God. So we have here a short discourse about the glory of God. And what Paul is doing here is he's giving a prayer wish on the heels of his confident assertion that God would supply all of their needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So you can almost think of it like I, I, tell you, I told you last week, God will supply your needs. And it's a promise which has to do specifically with doing good works for him. We looked at that from 2 Corinthians. But it's, it's in the matter of giving and receiving where the context where Paul is writing here. And if I were to say to you, God is going to supply your needs one way or the other, and you let that sink in, the words that should come back out of your mouth would be, praise be to God, thank God that he will provide my needs. Paul is responding in a sense to what he himself has just written and instructing us by so doing that this is how we should respond. If he's going to supply all our needs, well, to him be glory forever and ever. He deserves that. He doesn't have to supply our needs. You know, at some point he will allow us to expire because he's going to supply us a greater need than physical, a continuance of physical life. He's going to bring us into the real need that we have, which is close, closer fellowship with him in heaven. But uh, we're dealing with a, a glorification of God here on the heels of this confident assertion that God is going to supply their needs. And this is why we can be, by the way, one of the main reasons we can be content, God supplying our needs. Now, what, what we're saying here is our God, oh, by the way, I didn't, I didn't highlight this. Notice what he said in verse 8, was it 18? Uh, no, 19. My God will supply all of your needs. And then he says in verse 20, now to, not my God, our God. Just pick that little detail up in the study. My God and our God. Our God is worthy of praise and honor because he has arranged things so that our needs and at least in our culture many of our wants also are provided and when adversity comes we remember that god is still providing in accordance with his will shall we not take good from the hand of god uh, if we take good from the hand of god shall we not also take adversity job taught us that and so 
Paul's giving him glory for what he has done. We have the hope that God will indeed be recognized as he should be because of this, and we acknowledge God's care for us in this. To him be the glory. Now, he is worthy of honor. Our God is worthy of honor and glory for a number of reasons. In Luke's gospel in chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but you remember the context, the birth narrative of Christ, and the shepherds are out in the fields, and who appears to them but angels from glory. And they begin to extol the glory of God. They tell them that unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And here's how you will find him when you go looking for him. But in Luke 2.14, I want you to notice this. They say this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The angels proclaim the glory of God at the birth of Jesus. God is worthy of glory because he sent Christ. Secondly, God has the power to strengthen us according to his gospel. Uh, I'll look at Romans chapter uh, 16. And um, so you know what I'm doing here. I basically am just, I hunted around the New Testament for all the doxologies that I could find. And I just soaked in those doxologies for a little while in my study. And so I'm sharing with you the wonder of that. Romans chapter uh, 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. He has the power to strengthen us according to the gospel which he revealed and in which he demonstrated his infinite wisdom. Paul will say something to that effect earlier in Romans chapter 11 when he talks about the, the relationship of, of Israel to the sovereign plan of God and he says how that relates to the Gentiles and their salvation. You know, that whole drive them to jealousy their fall is riches for the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will come to faith, and then Israel will be drawn back to God. And, and he just, his mind is blown to bits. And he says, you know, to this God in Romans 11, 33 to 36, we can't, he can't comprehend. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be Glory forever. Amen. To think of the infinite cleverness of God, that he would design such a program of salvation, ought to cause us to give him honor and glory. Let's look at 1 Timothy 1.17. There's another one here from the Apostle Paul. I'll venture to say this, if your life is focused on honoring God, if, you're, if your life is focused on giving glory to God, your life will be a lot different than if it's glorifying people, glorifying things, honoring the things of this life. Amazing difference will be made in your life. Look at 1 Timothy 1.17. 
Um, actually, I'll go back to verse uh, 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, is God worth, worthy of glory for that? Of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is worthy of glory because he sent his Son, because of the gospel that he sent and revealed, because he came to save sinners. He's also worthy of glory because of what Jude says in verses 24 and 25. You remember that doxology, do you? Jude, right before Revelation in your Bible, the last two verses. Jude, one chapter, so we often omit the chapter number, and we just give the verses, 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Pause just there for a second, would you? You, if you are like me sometimes, when you're not in your most self-confident moments, you think, man, I can really stumble if God doesn't help me. You know that feeling? Any person, any Christian can stumble in very bad ways. Absolutely. Don't allow me to walk the path of iniquity, God. Don't allow any temptation to overtake me. Now, he's promised me that, but if I look in the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord talks about temptation, doesn't he? Lead us not into temptation, that now controversial portion of Scripture that people have talked about. What he's talking about is, God, God, don't allow me to go into situations that will be too much for me. I don't want to sin. I want to stay away from that. God is able to keep you from stumbling. So if you're weak today, if you're feeling like you can't can't deal with it, that there are things that you're facing that are too difficult, that you're going to stumble and displease God in, just remember, He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. You, You probably sometimes despair. He's going to make me faultless before His throne? I'll just be glad to be before his throne, many of us say, right? But he's going to make us faultless and keep us from stumbling and put us there before him, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Do you have depression today? You'll have exceeding joy, at least at that time in your life. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You say, I don't get get all that. What's all this glory talk about? What is is God all about? Is he some egotistical maniac? You don't understand God if you don't understand that he is worthy of glory. He has made you. He has made the world. He has given you everything that you have. He has he he given you the breath that you're taking right at this very moment. And you think he's not worthy of glory? He's not worthy of honor? He's not worthy of thanks? 
God is able to keep us from stumbling and bring us before him without blame and with great joy. Revelation 1.6, just a page or so forward in your Bible, it says this. The letter is from Christ. He's a faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That was verse 5. Then verse 6 says, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is talking about who, who, of whom is the author speaking? To bring forth a question like in, in Acts chapter 8. It's speaking about Christ. He's the one who loosed us from our sins, made us kings and priests to God the Father. To him, to Christ, be glory. If you ever wonder in your, in your, in your thoughts, you know, am I really right to be worshiping Christ? Well, the Bible does. The Bible extols the worship of Christ. He is worthy, just like the Father and just like the Holy Spirit. He is worthy. And it's right here, printed in plain text. He has washed us, and he is worthy of our greatest honor and worship. Furthermore, he made us citizens in his coming kingdom, and more than that, he made us priests. Do you understand that? Priests, intermediaries, like people directly able to access God through prayer, through Christ directly? He's made us that. He is worthy of glory and power. We started with the angels. We'll come back to the angels just now in Revelation chapter 7. In verse number 12, all the, this is verse 11 actually, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. He is worthy of all of those for what he has done tells us in Revelation chapter 4, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they exist, and they were created. And there are other doxologies found. We read one in Romans 11, and there's one in Ephesians chapter 3, and there's one in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 18, which reads like this, And the Lord will deliver me, from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And there's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number uh, 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone uh, speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do so as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Are you noticing a pattern here in these doxologies? Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. We read Revelation 4. There's one in Revelation 5. There's one in Revelation chapter 14. Let's look at that one, 14. Here's another angel 
I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven and having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Finally, I think uh, Revelation 5, I didn't do this one yet, did I? <laughs> 5.13, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Notice that, father and lamb, co-located together, worthy of all that worship forever and ever. And the four living creatures capped it off with an amen, with only voices that they could muster. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Sixteen portions of God's word, all in the last 27 books. There are others throughout the, the Bible. I didn't search and hunt them all down because there are so many, but this is representative enough that we know that we must extol the glory of God. I hope this hasn't tired you out. (laughs) This is 16, which will be repeated for ever and ever and ever, world without end. Amen. The scripture justifies us to sing when we've been there 10,000 years. Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we had first begun. For 10,000 times 10,000 years and thousands of thousands of generations, as it were, we will be able to praise and extol the living God. He deserves every last bit of it. Almost all of these passages refer to the duration of the glory of God. Remember how they all said forever and ever? In Philippians, as in many of the others, it uses a very interesting Greek phrase. It's like, into the ages of the ages. But in English, the translators have said, well, how do we translate into the ages of the ages in a way that makes sense? They just say forever. (laughs) Because we have that word forever that means that. It's commonly understood simply to mean for all time or all eternity. God will receive and should receive glory in every age both now and in the kingdom age to come and in the eternal state after that. In that final era, all of creation will recognize God for who he is and worship him. Most of the doxology passages also end with the word amen. Now, some of them end with the word amen, and that's caused a problem in the Greek text because maybe a scribe is just writing along and he's so knowledgeable about all of these 16 and more doxologies that he thinks, well, every one of them ends with amen. Well, maybe one or two of them don't. And so, but he adds the word amen at the end. No big deal, friends. Okay, we're not going to get bent out of shape about that. Many of them end with the word amen. What it says is, so let it be. The preceding words are faithful to the truth. Another dictionary says this, amen is a strong affirmation of the words that were previously spoken. It's an assent. It's an endorsement of what was just said. If, if, if you're in a church where there are a lot of people who 
offer an amen back to the preacher. What they're doing is basically they're saying, we endorse what you are saying. We are adding our stamp of approval to it. That's what amen means. Okay, You don't have to say amen at the end of every prayer, but you better mean every prayer as if you could say amen at the end of it and say these are true words and they're, they're affirmed to be correct and we assent to them and we endorse them truly. I hope you don't pray a prayer that you don't, you don't really endorse. Like you say, you know, to God be the glory forever and ever. And you say amen, but you don't mean amen. Do you mean amen? Do you mean a strong endorsement and a sense of affirmation of what you have just said? Notice also in, back in Philippians, I got lost here in so many passages of the Bible. I'll come back to Philippians. Now to our God and Father... Notice to whom the doxology is directed, our God and Father. He is to us who know him, both God and Father at the same time. These two words describe different aspects of our relationship to him, or should I say his relationship to us. He is related to us as king and subject, that's God, and as father to son, that's the father side of it. He is high and lifted up, that's God, but he's close and compassionate, that's the Father. He is holy, as God is holy, but he is also a friend, like a father to an adult child. He is all-powerful, that's God, and he's also tender. He rules every star and every galaxy. And he cares about the small details of your life. He's God and Father. He created you as God. And and after you demonstrated an initial aversion to him in your walk in life, he adopted you as his own child, as your father. Our God and Father. The Greek text here has no verb in it. Uh, It doesn't have, what does it say here? Now to God to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. It's not, there's no word be there in the original text. It's supplied. Maybe your version has italics there. It's just like this. Now to our God and Father, glory belongs to Him forever and ever. It's appointed to Him that way. Paul then closes out the letter. We have to hasten on, to greet the saints that are there in the church. And I want to point out just something about the sense of this text. When he finishes with, you know, the glory, the doxology to God, and he's turning now his attention to the saints in the church. He's focused his attention on God. Now he's going to turn to the saints in the church. And he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. This is a um, probably handwritten by Paul. Often at the end of his letters, he wrote by hand so that you could see his handwriting. It became kind of a signature piece of his work. You could know that it was not a forgery by his handwriting. But Paul sends greetings here, and this is more than just mere regards. You know how we write at the end of our emails, uh, sincerely or regards or 
best regards. Now people are doing it. It's kind of a trend that I've seen and haven't seen it much lately, but in emails to me, that'll say best, comma, best what? You know, I like, fill in the blank, man. Tell me best what? Best wishes, best regards, best something. Um, it's not just a, a, a greeting generally. Two things about this greeting. Notice what he says, greet every saint. Leaders of the church who received the Philippian letter, I want you to greet every saint in that church from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul sends you greetings and you greetings and you greetings and you greetings and you. Every saint in the church, greetings. And notice that these greetings are not just human level, you know, best or best regards greetings. These are greetings that share a warm affection in the life and bond of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a greeting that cannot be broken by distance, by time, or even by death. It reflects the reality that we are all eternally united in Christ, every single saved person. That's why it says every saint in Christ. As we've said, too, in past times, if you're saved, you are a saint, meaning you've been set apart for God. You don't have to be dead to be a saint, okay? After you die, you'll still be a saint. And while you're alive, you are a saint. And you know what? You should behave like, you should behave like a saint, shouldn't you? Yes, we should. Um, then he says, uh, the brothers who are with me greet you. And I think he's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus, but there are probably others as well, uh, close associates with Paul. Sometimes Silas would be in that group, other times Luke. And pa- Paul passes their greetings to the church as well. And if you can only imagine the, the, the notion of Christians who know each other, even remotely, being far apart from one another. I mean, think of our, our missionaries planting churches in, church, in, in places 5,000, 10,000, 12,000 miles away from us. And you just wish you could just see those people. You pray for them. You know, on Wednesday prayer meeting, we pray for many of those folks, some of them by name. And you wish you could be connected with them in some way. Well, in heaven you shall be. Maybe never on this earth you will be. But you want to send your greetings as well. And so Paul gives a space here for those people that are with him to send greetings. And then he expands the greetings yet again, not just from himself and his immediate party, but also from all the saints greet you, especially those who are of Caesar's household. Well, this is very interesting. Earlier on, he said that the gospel was, was uh, being promoted, was being advanced even in the, uh, the guard, in the palace guard amongst the people where he was. He was certainly witnessing to all the soldiers that were attending to his situation. And now he says to Caesar's household. Now, we don't know how up high in the household this went, but just think about what a household was. A household was... Um, like a family compound, you could think of it, where they lived, you'd have the head of house, you'd have the wife, you'd have the children, you'd maybe have his or her parents living with them as they care for them, you'd have maybe grandchildren, you might have uh, servants, slaves, hired hands. In this, and of course, Caesar, the richer you were, the bigger your household may well have been. And if you're, of course, Caesar, how big is your household? Huge. He's got so many servants, slaves, family members, uh, governmental officials, all of that stuff in, in the home. 
uh, people managing governmental affairs, food, money, personal security, animals, all of his goods, properties, everything, Caesar's household. And the Apostle Paul is saying there are some in Caesar's household who have been born again. Now, we don't know who those people were, but if you look in the book of Romans in chapter 16, Paul is writing to Rome, and he gives a whole bunch of names. And I wonder if some of those names were names of people who were in Caesar's household, who were in the home and in the, I mean, rubbed shoulders with this man and served him and, and were there in Christ. Maybe some of the Romans had visited Philippi before, knew some of the people in the church there. You know, they, in Philippi, they had a prominent businesswoman, seller of purple. They had a prison official, perhaps others there as well. The application I take from this portion of the chapter is simply this, to remember to greet your fellow saints, whether it's in writing, especially in person. You don't know the last time that you might be able to greet one of your fellow saints who by reason of time passage, distance, move, illness, death, you'll never be able to greet again on this side of heaven. So do give those kinds of greetings. Do so for more than merely sentimental reasons because you're one in Christ. And finally, Paul wishes for grace upon the church. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I I wanted to repeat uh, Homer Kent's comment on this verse. It's very appropriate. He says this, this verse, it invokes on the Philippian church the continuing favor of Christ to be with their spirits. The realization of this benediction, this good word, would increase the harmony of the congregation by causing the spirit of each believer to cherish the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and bring joyous peace among them, fulfilling the apostles' opening wish. What was his opening wish? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he closes with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The fact of the matter is, if you are a Christian, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has already been and is upon you. But who would not wish for more of such favor, not only in quantity, but also in in continuance as time goes on? What if I were to tell you the grace of God is going to run out tomorrow? Don't take it for granted, my friends. What if you didn't have the grace of God today or tomorrow? We need that grace all the time. And God promises to give it, but that does not make it wrong to request more of it, to pray for it, to desire it, to ask God to pour it out in abundance upon others. Christians have been justified, and because of that, we have peace with God through Christ and access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all the saints at Fellowship Bible Church, each and every one, for his glory. We don't know what further interactions Paul may have had with the church. These may have been his very last words to them ever, this side of heaven. We don't know. I don't know personally anyway, but maybe he did spend more time with them, be with them. We just wish we had more 
book of Acts to tell us what his travels were like. But in any case, thus ends the words of the Apostle Paul, which are the very words of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are indeed worthy of the glory, the honor, and the dominion, and the power, and the might, and the thanksgiving above every name that is named because you are God. You've created us, you've redeemed us, you sent your Son, all those things that we looked at earlier. May our people be the kind of saints who are concerned about giving glory to God and receiving back your grace from you. In Jesus' name, amen.